0: You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 127. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live
1: your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. It often goes undiagnosed. The good news is that we can reverse fatty liver. We can reverse actually many different stages of fibrosis. So that scarring, so fatty liver with time will turn into inflammation. That inflammation will turn into scarring of the liver, which is liver fibrosis. And then, at the end, um you know, that turns into uh, cirrhosis of the liver. So even until fibrosis stage three, we can actually reverse it. Um, we can reverse it to stage two.
0: Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am so happy to be with you today and so thrilled to bring you this amazing interview with Dr. Vanessa Mendez. If you know her, I'm sure you love her. She's sweet. She's smart. She's giving, she's loving, and she has so many wonderful things to say and so much great information that's going to help you live your best life. But before I tell you more about Dr. Mendez, I want to remind you that I have goodies, lots and lots of free goodies available on my website. So if you are new to plant-based nutrition, or you have friends and family members who are just like, I just, I can't live without cheese, or I just can't live without my burgers. Or what do I shop for when I want to eat a plant-based diet? How do I eat out on a plant-based diet? I've got you covered all in one place. If you go to dryami.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash free, I have lots of cool PDFs that you can download. A lot of them have recipes, lots of good tips. You can share them, give them to your friends and family, whatever. We have meat replacement, how to replace meat, how to replace dairy, eating out. There's even environmentally friendly things like making zero waste swaps, a shopping guide for plant-based nutrition, dryami.com forward slash free. And I also have a book. So if you're new to the podcast, my book is called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating. How to raise kids who love to eat healthy. It's available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. It's in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. And it's not just about eating more plants. A lot of people think that because that's my favorite thing to talk about, that the whole book is about that. Believe me, I know that not everybody's going to eat an exclusively plant based diet. I know that it's not everybody's goal to be vegan. That is not to me the most important thing whenever you're feeding your kids. I really focus on how to feed your children. But what I found is that as I've been teaching people how to feed their children, they've also learned a thing or two that can help themselves with their eating, especially if you've had any history of disordered eating, recurrent dieting, body image issues, check out this book. And if you do have kids and you have had some of those issues in your life, definitely check it out because I think it's going to help you. It's going to help decrease your anxiety, your stress, make for a more peaceful dinner table. That's what I've been hearing from all the mamas, all the healthcare professionals that are reading this book and recommending it to their patients and friends and family. So thank you. All of you that have read my book have written a review and have reached out to me to tell me how much it's changed your life and helped you in your feeding journey. Just want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by healthcare professional. So if you have concerns about your own or your child's eating nutrition, or growth, please speak to their doctor. Dr. Vanessa Mendez, she is a double board certified gastroenterologist and internist. She specializes in digestive disorders, including liver disease, which is what we're going to focus on in this podcast episode. We're going to talk about fatty liver a lot, but she also specializes in inflammatory bowel disease, nutrition-based disorders, such as obesity and constipation. Her approach to patients and their diseases is holistic and comprehensive. Her goal is not just to treat the symptoms, but to get to the root cause of an ailment and provide lasting relief. She provides an evidence-based approach to her practice and focuses on lifestyle changes first to promote wellness. Dr. Mendez attended Harvard University, where she obtained a BA in Latin American Studies with a minor in pre-med. From there, she began her medical training at the ACGME-accredited Universidad Central del Caribe in Puerto Rico. She completed her residency in internal medicine at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital and her fellowship in gastroenterology at Tulane Medical Center in New Orleans, which we talk about in this podcast episode. She has also trained in epidemiology through Florida International University and in plant based nutrition through Cornell University. She was awarded a visiting fellowship at the Mayo Clinic through the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, where she received special training in inflammatory bowel diseases. She has also helped lead multiple fundraising walks to raise awareness for Crohn's and colitis in the Miami area. She was awarded Physician Champion at the Take Steps Walk 2019 for the Health team. She's the director of telehealth for the Institute of Plant Based Medicine. IOPBM is a multi specialty practice based in Newport Beach, California. She also serves as the director of international relations for the nonprofit Planted in Health. She is passionate about grassroots community outreach and community based programs that transform health through a culturally sensitive approach. As you can see, La Doctora Mendez is. Very prepared. She knows her stuff and she has a compassionate heart. So I know that you are going to love hearing from her in this episode. We talked about her plant based journey, which is amazing, not just for her, but for her husband. So please pay attention to that. We talk about social media and Why she takes the time and energy to make sure that her posts are bilingual, which I find amazing. And then we really start delving into non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, how it affects the Latin American population, what causes it, what are the signs and symptoms, how it's diagnosed and how it's treated. Specifically, we talk about lifestyle changes. And how it can affect fatty liver disease. So please pay attention to that discussion as well. And of course, we talk about what her most proud habit that she has and how listeners can connect with her. And she leaves us with a really great call to action. So thank you so much for being here to listen to this episode today. I know you're going to love it. So let's dive right in. So I wanted to pop this in really quick because during our discussion today, La Doctora Mendez and I talked about central adiposity, also referred to as central obesity or abdominal obesity. I prefer the term central adiposity because it's just more objective and less loaded and triggering for some people. So basically what that means is that the distribution of the fat in your body tends to go in the middle, or you have a lot of fat that accumulates around the center of your body. When we see that people have more fat on the middle of their body, it could just be what we call subcutaneous fat, which is the fat right underneath your skin, or it could mean that you have more visceral fat. That means fat in and around your organs. Whenever people have more fat around their organs or in their organs, like we talk about in this discussion today with fatty liver disease, that increases the risk of certain conditions like type two diabetes mellitus, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, and even just increased mortality. And this is independent of body mass index, which we can argue whether body mass index is the best measure for things anyway, but it's independent of that. So even if you have a normal or quote normal body mass index, but you carry your weight in the middle of your body and you have more fat there, it could mean that you have more fat around your organs, which may increase your risk of these conditions. So in the discussion today, we talked about that and I wanted to give you the numbers there are several different ways that it's, you know, uh, defined, but for the United States and what I studied for my lifestyle medicine certification, it's the American medical association definition for waist circumference. You would be concerned for a woman. If your waist circumference is greater than 35 inches or for a man, if it's greater than 40 inches, however, La doctora Mendez and I spoke today that you know what we need to remember that there's ethnic differences I'm Panamanian I'm Latina I got some wide hips so the other thing to the other way to measure is called waist to hip ratio waist to hip ratio so basically you take your waist measurement so whenever you measure your waist you're going to measure standing up feet together right at your umbilicus, right at your belly button. So that's your waist. And then your hip ratio, which is going to be at the broadest part of your hips where your hip bones land. It's kind of like right at the top of your buttocks there. Okay. So you get the measurement for your waist and you get the measurement for your hips and you're going to divide the waist by the hips for women. If it's greater than 0.85, Or for men, if it's greater than 0.9, this may be a marker that you're at increased risk for potentially having more fat around your organs. Now, it could still all be subcutaneous fat. The only way to know for sure, for sure, is to get a DEXA scan and they can kind of see where your fat is distributed, but most people aren't gonna do that. So this is going to be the cheap, easy way to see if you're at increased risk. But remember, on this podcast... I talk, you know, I tread more carefully around these things because it can throw people into a state of wanting to fix everything and go on a crash diet and maybe you're doing just fine. So this is just another marker to determine if you know that your habits and behaviors are not aligned with longevity and with well-being, focus on that don't be going on a crash diet, trying to focus on your waist size. Okay. What I prefer you to look at your habits and behaviors instead, but this is just another marker that can be used. And we discussed, so I wanted you to know, okay, so waist American medical association, greater than 35 inches for women, greater than 40 inches for men, waist to hip ratio for women, greater than 0.85 for men, greater than 0.9. 0.9. Okay, enough of that. And let's move on. Dr. Vanessa Mendez, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. What a treat.
1: Thank you so much for having me here, Dr. Yami. Um, I have been following you for quite a while. I am incredibly inspired by you. And I love everything that you're doing. So I am a ecstatic to be here talking to you guys.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for saying those kind words. I really appreciate it. Well, you're doing some pretty amazing stuff yourself. So I'm excited to dig into all that. But before we get into some of the details about GI stuff and fatty liver, which is something I'm really interested in talking about this episode, I want to know about your background. Tell me about your plant-based journey. How did you end up here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't have an incredible story, an incredible transformational story like you hear, you know, some of our colleagues uh, have gone through, but I think each of our stories has um, a unique story to tell and uh, a learning opportunity for, for everybody. Um, so originally, I uh, started exploring changes in nutrition with, you know, my own health. When I was in high school. So when I was in high school, I suffered from um cystic acne. And I had gone to several dermatologists. And, uh, you know, the usual medication given to patients are uh, antibiotics, um, a lot of uh vitamin A derivatives, and um all of them would work, but they were incredibly harsh on my skin. And I obviously didn't like taking antibiotics. Who does, right? And uh, there was never any mention about diet. So I went through um, probably six months to a year of that, and I saw no lasting improvement. Um, at that time, the dermatologist recommended that I actually go on Accutane. So Accutane is a very powerful medication, and it is a vitamin A derivative. Um, there's actually been several drug recalls when it comes to Accutane and several um big lawsuits because of its link to inflammatory bowel disease. So that's very interesting as you guys will hear um, the rest of my story. Um, But um, I went on Accutane. Um, uh, When you go on Accutane, you have to get your uh, cholesterol panel checked regularly. You have to um, go on birth control. So it's an incredibly powerful medication and it, it has a lot of different Side effects. So um, I, you know, my liver enzymes went up when I was taking Accutane because of that high cholesterol association. It increases your cholesterol levels. It can give you fatty liver. So my even my uh, liver enzymes, which were completely normal before that, went up. um, I realized that you know this is not going to be a medication that. First of all, you can't take it for a long time. But even while I was taking it, I was incredibly uncomfortable taking it just because of its other health effects so um eventually i just finished the course and um but i didn't i even though i did see significant improvement i didn't see lasting improvement so at that time i was i was basically fed up and i started researching on my own at that it was we're in the 90s so it was just really the beginning of you know the internet and uh looking up things on the internet there was obviously no Google at that time, um, and uh, I started researching anti-inflammatory diets, and you know everything that I saw linked to dairy and red and processed red meat and processed foods as being one of the contributors to acne. So at that time, I cut myself hundred percent completely from red meat, uh, processed foods, and dairy, and the the effects were dramatic. Like literally, in in a week, um, I had seen improvements. And uh, after that, you know, I never developed cystic acne again. Um, I ended up going to college, you know, and as a typical college uh, student, you uh, um, really enroll yourself in a lot of unhealthy habits, such as, you know, eating late at night, eating processed foods. Um, um. Drinking alcohol, so uh, that diet that I had been following in high school, I you know I undid that in college, Um, and then but I was but I saw the effects of a change in diet uh, right away, and I knew that dairy and red meat were not good for us from that time. I knew it in processed foods, so so I just knew it, even though um, you know I completed my college education, went to medical school, did all my training, and then nobody talked about this. Nobody replicated those those same findings that I knew to be true. And the, I knew the information was out there. It was just like, our teachers were not talking about it. Our mentors were not talking about it. So um, it was when I was in a fellowship uh, in New Orleans, that about three and a half years ago, that I think I finally um, just was fed up with it. So I, again, Nobody ever mentioned this personally from my, as a a physician, I was treating my patients traditional medical treatment with medications. They weren't really getting better. Um, they were feeling better, but you know, you remove those medications and their symptoms rebound and nobody wants to be on medications the rest of their life. So I wasn't having significant improvement and, um, an impact in my patients' lives. And on a personal note me and my husband um we were having a typical new orleans uh you know food fair which is very high in dairy um uh, alcohol he doesn't drink but um and uh you know a lot of processed foods um and uh, a lot of fatty foods a lot of butter and everything right typical uh southern uh fare And uh, we were feeling it. We definitely felt very sluggish. We felt like we were 80 years old. We couldn't even exercise. And um, at that time, we started watching all these documentaries, right? The ones that we talk about all the time, what the hell, um, Forks Over Knives, and so many other documentaries that are out there. And everything made sense. Everything just came to a boiling point. We were like, okay, we can't continue this way forever. Um, so from one day to the next, we literally donated and just stopped buying everything in the house that was like we cleaned out our pantry, our fridge, we donated everything um to people that you know were eating that way. And we said, at least at home we're never gonna bring this food ever again. Um and at home we went a hundred percent plan based at that point. And you know, everybody goes through a transition point. So I think it takes a lot, you know it takes different times for everybody. Um but definitely was it was difficult in New Orleans and then um and, and in my training. But then when we moved to uh finally moved to back home to Florida um it's been a little bit more um you know easier because we have a lot of family support. Traditional Latin food is um is very big on you know beans and 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 fruits and um and, uh, vegetables. So it's been very easy to follow a plant-based diet back home here. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the other side of this is that my husband, right. And this is the more significant part of the story that my husband, um, has had Crohn's disease since he was 17 years old. So he, um, he has been on, he's gone through all the traditional channels of Traditional medicine, having to get you know yearly colonoscopies, have biologic infusions. Uh, biologic infusions are uh, sort of like the st- strength of chemotherapy medications. Um, since he was about twenty-two years old, he um, at when in his early twenties had to undergo um, a small bowel and resection. So he's already had to have surgery for his disease. Crohn's disease is a chronic disease. There's no cure. It's, um, you know, GI doctors don't talk about this, but it's very much linked to diet and a lot of lifestyle, uh, Western lifestyle um, uh, habits that we have that are not healthy. So um, when we decided to go plant-based, he had never been in remission. So from the time he was 17 years old to the time he was, I think, maybe like 32 or 33 when we were in New Orleans, um, never been in remission, taking these strong infusion medications through his vein every month. Um, and um, a year after that, he uh, was declared to be in remission. So a year of going, you know, almost 100% plant-based, he was for the first time in his life declared to be in remission. Again, he was taking still those um, strong medications, but the strong medications hadn't gone all the way. And then just a year afterwards, he was declared to be in remission. He's never going to be cured. I mean, because we don't have a cure yet. Maybe one day it's very difficult to get a cure for inflammatory bowel disease. It's just a very individualized, um, disease. Everybody's disease is very different. And, um, but I, we know the power of diet. So he was my first, you know, my first patient, my little guinea pig. Um, and from then on, I've gone on to, uh, treat patients with standard medical treatment with medications, but also with, uh, you know, plant-based diet as much as they can tolerate. And I have seen, I mean, the pictures that I have from the before and after plant-based diet are just astounding, huge ulcers, uh, turning into just scar tissue. Right. Um, and the colon completely healed after, after changing to a healthier diet. Um, so, you know, that's been our story. I think our, each of our stories continues all the time, especially as providers, we see the power of, of nutrition and different lifestyle, um, changes and what they can really do for our health.
0: Wow, that's an amazing story. But I want to validate your story too because even though, you know, you started out with like, yeah, it's it's not that amazing, it's not that dramatic. Actually, it is because acne is very psychologically distressing for some people and it can alter their life, their social life, their self-esteem. And you you got to the point where you were taking Accutane, which that means it was pretty serious acne, you know, cuz like you said Accutane, you do not take that lightly. And very ironically, that we're going to talk about fatty liver, because accutane, like you said, can trigger fatty liver and affect the liver. But, you know, this was this was not like small potatoes. But then on your own, you took charge and you're like, you know what? What can I do myself? How can I be empowered? And you saw dramatic improvement, which couldn't even be caused long-lasting. You know, it was like a band-aid. Accutane was just like a band-aid. It helped. But as soon as you got off of it, it was back to where you were because it wasn't an upstream treatment. It was just a Band-Aid, right? So you were able to go to the root cause of what was causing the way that you were exhibiting inflammation in your body was through your skin and you were able to to discover that. But you weren't quite ready to stay there, right? Because you were (laughs) living the life, college, you know, I don't even know. Like, I, I agree. Like... I'm glad I found it at the time I did. I don't know what would have happened if I would have known about the power of you know whole plant foods earlier, but I agree. We kind of have to sow our, our wild oats sometimes and <laughs> do all the stuff and learn the hard way what works for us. But so amazing Absolutely. the story about your husband as well. And, and I'm sure that he's feeling very grateful that together you both found it and decided to try it. But one thing I also wanted to say, New Orleans, I've been plant-based over nine years now. New Orleans is the only place that I went to a restaurant and pretty much they refused to make me anything that didn't have meat in it. Like the only thing that they were willing to give me was this like tiny little, like literally it was like half a cup of like a cucumber, like some kind of cucumber dill thing with vinegar. That was all I ate. Like the chef was like, nope, I won't alter anything else. In almost ten years of being plant-based, so I completely understand how that must have been difficult. But I'm just thinking of like beignets and bread pudding. Oh man, there's so and, many delicious and foods and in New Orleans
1: with with oh uh, cheese and butter on top. Oh, so many things. I don't know uh, etouffées, shrimp po' boys. E- literally everything oh has either oh dairy. Our butter or some kind of animal. We're of meat. In it. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. So Florida,
0: I yeah, I could see how that would be easier, especially with all the rice and beans and plantains mm-hmm. and yuca and oh, uh, my mouth is just watering. Yes. But speaking <laughs> of Florida and yuca and platano and all of that, <laughs> uh, I follow your social media. You have such beautiful educational posts that are just very informative and beautiful but also you put them in both English and Spanish so tell me why you do this and more about your Latina background
1: yeah absolutely so um, I'm Cuban-American I was born in Cuba we came over when I was nine um, from Cuba uh, my parents and I um, because my mother my grandmother was a Spanish citizen we were able to just come um, we were you know given that opportunity to immigrate Um Uh, easily. Um, and, uh, they started a new life here when I was nine years old. I have no siblings. So I was the typical latchkey kid. You know, I would come home from school and be alone for a couple of hours, kind of direct my own, um, you know, learning and, and taking care of myself. And, um, my parents worked incredibly hard, um, several jobs, um, and uh you know my roots are really the you know we call um my hometown here um like uh it's kind of like little havana right so it's like a small cuba um here in the middle of south florida so you know my my roots are here i um um i also trained in puerto rico so um i did my medical school training in puerto rico so i i have um i have You know, a very deep rooted passion for our our Latino community, and I think that our Latino community is just incredibly resilient. And um, when you look um, at all sorts of outcomes, but let's focus on health outcomes um, in the Latino community. um, You know, we have something called the Latino paradox, where um, whether it be because it's kind of self self selective immigrants. Uh, usually, healthier immigrants migrate to the United States, but really, I think it comes back to lifestyle habits, their work habits, and their eating habits in their native countries um, tend to be. And you know, Latinos come from all over, right? So we have South America, Central America, we have the Caribbean. Um, so um, everybody, all, all all those groups have their unique cultural differences and and foods. But I think uh, common ground for a lot of them is that. They have um, a, a big connection to, to their food, and uh, food is a big part of their culture, and um, they really relish that food prep and where, where their food comes from is usually nearby. Um, they tend to have a more um, plant-based diet at baseline. They, they eat whatever grows around them um whether it be in their their typical garden like in their home gardens um their huertitos, um, or you know nearby or uh, if they're working the fields they have a deeper connection to the foods and um and i think plant based diet is is more predominant in the latin american communities again there are exceptions but it it does like typical Nutrition is, like you mentioned, rice and beans and starchy vegetables, yuca, malanga, um, potatoes, you know, um, and, uh, and fruit, lots of fruit in, in our Latin American communities. So I think that they naturally eat this way and then meat becomes, um, you know, like a, a small side dish. Um, I mean, I grew up, in my case is very different because, you know, I, I grew up in a dictatorship, but, um, in, in, uh. And, you know, but, but it, 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 there are similarities. So um, we would get a hold of a meat product and we would split it in like 10 different ways. So it was always a side dish, you know? Um, And, um, and we do have that passion for our foods and we really um, connect with that food preparation. So we didn't grow up in in typical um, you know western style cities where fast food was available, and um, I mean obviously that that's changing in our a lot of our Latin American communities, and uh, we're seeing the rise in in the same western style diseases in a lot of our Latin American communities, especially in places like Brazil, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Um, but I think at baseline, we do have a different way of viewing food. Um, so you know, the Latino paradox is this, this um idea that Latinos, even though they may have the same socioeconomic status as, let's say, African Americans, they do have um uh better health outcomes, uh decreased mortality rates when when compared to their um black counterparts in the United States. So um, but we know that Latinos, for example, um they as when when they migrate to the united states they adopt a lot of those these western style habits and then their the subsequent generations um start to develop the same types of diseases that you know um people that have lived here longer already already have um their obesity type 2 diabetes um uh, cardiovascular disease all of that increases with subsequent generations and things like autoimmune disorders autoimmune disorders are very um, very rare in Latin American communities, um, but they have been on the rise as they become more Westernized. And um, and as I mentioned, as these populations migrate to the United States, we actually see the rise when we follow generations. We see the rise in autoimmune disorders as as the generations progress. So, you know, a second uh, generation um, Mexican American is going to have a higher risk of having something like inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid arthritis than somebody who just arrived here from their native country. And you know, it's not just about the food, but the food is a huge part of it. It's also about the lifestyle habits that we adopt when we when we arrive here, right? Um, and uh, there's a huge, uh, there's we know that healthcare disparities and uh, systemic biases are there for our minority community, so that cannot be ignored. Um, but there's a lot of different lifestyle factors that are also contributing to these changes in health outcomes as as immigrants um, migrate to to western countries.
0: yeah, so many so many great topics there. And I just say from my own experience, so I'm Panamanian, and my mother was born and raised in Panama in the country, no running water, no electricity. And she always talks so fondly of her childhood. But one of the things that stands out the most is how, you know, Panama, Central America. So it's a tropical country and there's fruit year round. There's fruits all the time. And she's basically like, a fruit addict. So she talks about how she would climb the mango tree and just eat mangoes all day or, you know, like all the different fruits that she would eat, the guava and guanavana and everything, you know, there was always something in season. So I know that she was exposed to a lot of antioxidants and fiber. And because they were poor, they didn't, even though they were, you know, my family in Panama are still farmers and, in the dairy business but even though they were farmers at that point because they were poor they weren't consuming a lot of those animal products you know they are mostly the corn maize rice beans fruit And my mom said that she would, even the kids, the adults and the kids would have just basically black coffee for breakfast. That was their breakfast. Maybe a tiny piece of the corn that they would make a tortilla or changa or something and just black coffee. So very different lifestyle than what we live. And as you say, we go through those generations and it becomes more processed, ultra processed. Then we add in sleep deprivation because we have all this exposure to blue light and technology and stress and We're not connected as much as we were before. So as you can see, changing from some of these countries or maybe things may have seemed like, okay, it's a developing country. You don't have as much, but actually there were probably some advantages compared to now. Of course, she talks also about every single infectious disease. Like she'll describe all the different (laughs) things. Like I know she had mumps. I know she had whooping cough because she can describe all of that stuff. So she had like every single disease. (laughs) <laughs> but she didn't get chicken pox yeah. until I got chicken pox when I was a kid. And she was like, was in bed for a week with the chicken pox. So do you feel like, you know, the, the newer, the younger Latin Americans, so the second and third generation Latin Americans that now their diet has been Westernized. Are you seeing more interest from that community in, Going back to the roots and maybe adopting a more plant based diet. Who's reaching out to you on social media, especially since you are opening up to the Spanish speaking community? I'm just curious about that. And now a word from our sponsor. Thank you so much to Forager Project for generously sponsoring this episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. California crafted since 2013, Forager Project is an organic, plant-based, family-owned and operated food company creating innovative, delicious tasting products sourced from nature's finest ingredients, nuts, seeds, ancient grains, fruits, and vegetables. They make 100% organic and vegan yogurts, nut milks, sour cream, kefirs, shakes, and butter. But what's even cooler than that is right now, Forger Project has the vote campaign because they have a commitment to help cultivate democracy. So during this time, they are shifting the packaging on their yogurts, kefirs and milks to encourage you to vote. Now I've tasted forager project yogurt. It's cashew based. I had the strawberry and the vanilla. They're so delicious, so creamy. And I love that they have recognizable ingredients. Don't have a bunch of additives and stuff that I don't want in my food. And it's really important that it tastes good too. So you definitely want to check out these products. Forager Project is passionate about creating healthy, organic, plant-based food, and they are equally passionate about nurturing a healthy democracy. They believe that voting is the most essential ingredient needed to do this. They want to inspire everyone to get out and vote and participate in our democracy. If you need more resources, they've provided resources and information for you at foragerproject.com forward slash vote or follow them on social media at foragerproject. Cultivate democracy.
1: Vote. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a great question. And I, and I actually forgot to answer your previous question, which was, you know, um, this connection, I mean, I half answered it, this connection to, to this, to our community is super important. And I think that because of all the struggles our community goes through, uh, whether they're new immigrants, or they've been here for a long time, I think we have to advocate for them. And I think that, um, social media is one of these platforms where I can do that. And I can do that in a relatively easy way. Um, and, uh, I mean, I I get a lot of interest from, from actually, you know, um, the older generation. So like, if you're 40, to like, 55, I mean, that not older, but middle generation, um, I get a lot of interest there. I feel like they understand that, you know, because they saw it coming probably from their native countries that the food here is processed differently. You know, you can't just go out back in your backyard and like milk your cow or, you know, raise your chickens here. You don't really know where your food is coming from. So they understand that going back to the basics, um, if it's food that is easily recognizable, that's the way to go. Um, and, and they have that interest, that yearning to learn more and more. So I get a lot of interest, a lot of questions. Um, a lot of my patients are in that in that generation that they just want to take back their health. They're usually the matriarchs of their family, and um, they want to take care of their family. So um, I, I love that because it's so empowering to see them, you know, just take notes and and eat up everything that I'm saying and then transform their entire family's lives not just theirs you know um, and really just change the way that they view food um, and uh, I think I think it's just an amazing thing to see so one of the most enriching parts of of being on social media is actually that connection to my Latin American community to our Latin community I love it no because you know with the the
0: travel with the change with the time you kind of lose some of that collective wisdom a little bit, you know? So it's it's re, refilling that collective wisdom of what's going to nurture our families. And, you know, when you said older, I was like, you know, watch out because I'm already 41, okay? I don't consider myself older, but, but you know, I do have a teenager and, you know, you start having, you start seeing your family change around. you. Your parents are getting older. You're starting to see the effects of chronic disease. And so it makes sense that that age group Would be particularly interested because they're seeing the effects of diet and lifestyle and they want to take back you know they want to take back that collective wisdom what is the power of fruits and vegetables and eating our whole grains and how we feed our families and nurture our families so yeah thank you for doing the work that you do that's so important well let's talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because this is quite common among latinos and when I started learning about it a few years back, you know, I don't see it as much in pediatrics, but one of the things that I realized is that it's actually one of the top causes of death for Latin Americans. So can you tell me a little bit more about what fatty liver disease
1: is and what
0: causes it?
1: Absolutely. So, um, when we talk about fatty liver, we cannot divorce that topic from things like metabolic syndrome, obesity, type two diabetes, high cholesterol, and high blood pressure. Um, that's basically uh, it's it's a it's not a gradient, but it's it's all interrelated. It's all related to um, increased abdominal fat, um, that central. Ob- you know, that central uh, fat gain or that central obesity, you can be have thin arms, thin legs. But then if you have um, accumulated fat in your abdomen, that does increase your risk for a lot of different diseases, not only the ones I name, but also cardiovascular disease and stroke.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit
1: Parker.com/slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So um, so I think you know, we know that uh Hispanics um tend to increase their their they tend to accumulate fat in their abdomen more so than African-Americans and whites. We know that because it's it's in all the studies. Um, and, you know, obviously genetics is playing a part here. It it obviously is. And, and actually there's several genes associated with fatty liver in the Hispanic population. Um, so we cannot divorce that. We have to, you know, admit when genetics is playing a part just so that we know that we need to work a little bit harder in that sense. Um, but you know, we know that genetics is only one portion. And then when you put that together with a sedentary lifestyle and more processed foods or animal, you know, saturated fat from animal products, then you get that dual hit. That is, is what eventually leads to disease. So in the Latin community, um, We have several genes that are are um, affecting, you know, causing this central obesity and the fatty liver. And um, and when it comes to um, when it comes to our the lifestyle factors, we see that you know as they migrate to the United States, these are actually worsened. So even though our statistics from Latin America itself are not great, they're not reliable statistics, but we know that. Um, obesity and um, and being overweight is a lot more prevalent in places like Mexico um, and other Latin American countries. So we we know that that you know that's coming um, with the population as they migrate here, but it's also exacerbated as they get here. So fatty liver is um, excess accumulation of fat in your liver. Your liver processes a lot of the nutrients that we put in our mouth. So one of them you know is it's fat basically accumulating in the liver when the um, when the fat load cannot be handled appropriately then it just sits there it sits in the liver and over time um, fatty liver can uh, progress into fibrosis um, which is called Nash um, and um, and eventually it can progress into cirrhosis the The most terrible aspect of all of this is that fatty liver. I think it's something incredibly high, like uh, 30 to 60 percent. Different studies say different things, but uh, percent of the population doesn't know that they have fatty liver. Why? Because it doesn't give you symptoms. Um, You often your labs are completely normal, and actually, often you know, if you do end up getting imaging, things like a CT scan or an MRI. Are not a CT scan is not a great way to to diagnose fatty liver, so it might be picked up on an ultrasound, but many times it actually goes completely undiagnosed for many many years, even decades, uh, to the point that I have forty and fifty year old women actually showing up in my clinic, and I'm the first one to tell them, you know, they have cirrhosis of the liver. Basically, cirrhosis of the liver is already your liver, your liver has undergone so much damage that it is incredibly scarred. And um at that point, we have to monitor you very, very closely um, to prevent decompensations from from the cirrhosis. and if you do or, or your liver numbers look really bad, we have to um, we have to you know uh, refer you for a liver transplant. so um, which is really the only cure for cirrhosis of the liver. however, um, so it is incredibly um, you know upsetting that we don't have screening protocols in place right now. One of the protocols that I think is incredibly significant that is being proposed um, by s- different societies is that all patients with diabetes should be screened for fatty liver. And I think that should be it, um, some, a screening protocol that should be as part of all of our primary care um, screenings. And But I also think things like you know, central obesity and high cholesterol, hypertension, they should all be included in that because we can really reverse fatty liver. And that's the good news. So even though we don't have, you know, it often goes undiagnosed, the good news is that we can reverse fatty liver. We can reverse actually many different stages of fibrosis. So that scarring, so fatty liver with time will turn into inflammation. That inflammation will turn into scarring of the liver, which is liver fibrosis. And then at the end, um, you know, that turns into uh, cirrhosis of the liver. So even until fibrosis stage three, we can actually reverse it. Um, we can reverse it to stage two, which, you know, is a lot better. Fibrosis stage three. So cirrhosis is state, fibrosis stage four, right? So fibrosis stage three is already advanced fibrosis, um, but we can actually reverse that. And we do it with lifestyle. We do that with weight loss. We know that, you know, we opt, you know, we recommend that 10%, you lose at least 10% of your your weight. And that has shown to really decrease that inflammation of your liver. Um, But that has to be sustainable, right? Like it's not just about losing the weight and then you're going to regain it. That's actually could be worse for your liver. So these yo-yo dietings that people go on, Can actually be worse because when you have dramatic weight loss, you can actually also precipitate fatty liver. Um, The body doesn't can't handle that; those switches in in fat um, that uh, in a a fast uh, rapidly in a good way. They just can't, so it'll end up being stored as fatty liver. So we have to really, um, you know, educate our patients about what a sustainable life will be for them, and I think and what sustainable nutrition means for them. And I think part of that is being very culturally sensitive, right? So when we talk to our different communities, we can't all of a sudden, if I have, you know, uh, a, you know, a Cuban American, I can't be talking to them about soy if they've never had soy. So, or, you know, uh, a Mexican A Mexican-American who eats a traditional Mexican diet can not be telling them, you know, eat tempeh because that's going to be healthier for you. So we have to be very culturally sensitive, appeal to our different communities and really work with the resources that they have available, either culturally or in terms of, you know, access to foods. So um, I think that there's a huge disconnect in many, many different ways, not only in Lack of education for our communities, but also not being culturally sensitive when it comes to providing them with a sustainable um, nutrition plan that they can follow for the rest of their lives. Wow,
0: that's such great information. So, I guess going back to what it is though, so you're saying that what's happening is we're getting all of this fat deposited in our liver, but unfortunately, It may not cause any symptoms. So majority of people that have fatty liver have no clue that they have fatty liver because it doesn't really do it. It's not like it hurts. You're not really feeling anything. Um, But even if your doctor is checking you, so they're checking your labs and stuff, those might be normal. So is there some sort of criteria that are being used to determine if someone needs to go to that secondary testing and i'm wondering what is the gold standard is it a liver biopsy or what's the ultimate the best way to diagnose fatty liver disease
1: this is a great question right now in our primary care and preventative care you know guidelines there is absolutely nothing that says anybody's checking for fatty liver anybody you know you should be doing this to check for fatty liver in this type of patient there aren't so um, the guidelines that are being proposed by the diabetes societies are that Every patient with diabetes should be screened for fatty liver. That's not being done right now. I personally do it. Everybody who has high cholesterol, um, hypothyroidism, central obesity, hypertension, really, I have very low, um, very low um, like, uh, standards for checking, Um, I check everybody for fatty liver. And, um, you know, I do come from that GI background, that hepatology background. Um, So I know that actually, if I check, you know, if I have 10 patients in my office, probably, you know, four of them are going to have fatty liver. So, um, and they may not, you know, they they don't know it, they don't know it at all. So, um, you know, we used to have this, we used to have uh, we used to check ourselves, like in fellowship and our training programs, we would check ourselves. And actually a lot of our fellows had fatty liver, um, because of whatever reason, whether it was alcohol or poor nutrition or lack of exercise, a lot of them had fatty liver. So, um, we, we actually believe that a lot of the population, as much as 30 to 40% or more of the population has fatty liver and it's just going on completely undiagnosed. It causes no symptoms. So When a patient presents and I check them for another reason, I check an ultrasound and I detect their fatty liver, I I tell them, look, this is a blessing in disguise because now we can act. Um, But for most of our patients, it goes completely undiagnosed. I only get them when there's another issue or when that fatty liver has progressed. But nobody is screening people for fatty liver. Um, And then how do we diagnose it? So we diagnose it. uh, So there's different scoring systems in terms of labs. You know if your liver enzymes are elevated, then we can um score you through those systems. so just basically like a, a lab calculator. Um, uh, but really, my go-to is always a fiber scan. so it's also called the liver elastography. Um, some you know more advanced places use Mr elastography, but a fiber scan is just an ultrasound that you can do in office. and in fact, when I was in private practice here in Miami, um, we had one in our office and we would do it on on tons and tons of patients. So um, that's my go to always to do a fiber scan when I suspect, you know, if any if anybody's overweight, I do a fiber scan. Um, it's pretty affordable. You know, um, I think out-of-pocket is like, you know, it's pretty affordable relatively, right? So um, 150 it's is the cost out-of-pocket, right? And not everybody can afford that. We are sensitive to that. But insurance does cover it if you put other criteria. Um, so that's my go-to. It's a fiber scan. And you know, when it comes to fatty liver, you have to rule out all the other causes of liver disease before you come to the diagnosis of fatty liver. So we, um, when we, de- you know, when we detect fatty liver, we have to rule out hepatitis C, hepatitis B. We have to rule out autoimmune disorders. We can- we have to rule out, you know, whether medications, whether you know, things like steroids and um, and other hormone replacement medications can uh, cause fatty liver. Um, so we roll out all those things and then fatty liver becomes uh, a diagnosis of exclusion. So once you've ruled out everything else, then you, um, you get labeled with that diagnosis. If your liver enzymes are elevated and then you put the person on a diet, um, you know, change their nutrition and lifestyle and you check them three months later and their liver enzymes are not coming down and they've been compliant with it. Um, you could potentially uh, do a liver biopsy. We are doing less and less liver biopsies nowadays. It's only when something doesn't make sense that we are, you know, we're doing liver biopsies. Which is, it's an outpatient procedure. The patient's lying in on a bed, they anesthetize, They put a little bit of an anesthetic on their skin. It is uncomfortable, but it shouldn't be painful, and then they can go home right after. Um, so that does give us a definitive diagnosis, but. We rarely ever use that. We use that when somebody has advanced fibrosis and we don't know the cause. And, you know, we know that if we had a better idea of the cause, then we could put them on a treatment to reverse that fibrosis.
0: Well, that's good to hear. So most of the time you're able to diagnose this in a non-invasive Relatively inexpensive way. So, thank goodness, because yeah, it doesn't sound fun to have to do a liver biopsy. Can you define central obesity for people out there? Because, you know, some people may or may not have labs. So, maybe they know that they've been diagnosed with diabetes or they've been told that their cholesterol is high. But central obesity or at least waist circumference might be something that anybody can do at home. So, do you have a definition for that for
1: people that want to check themselves? So actually, that's a great question. And I uh, don't because um, I, you know, this is one of the things that you learn in your training and then you totally forget because you haven't done this in a long time. Um, so I think, you know, just look up central obesity. And then is, if you have any type of measure at home, just measure yourself. You can actually put those um, those two numbers. So it's your waist to hip uh, ratio. Um, and you can put those numbers in a calculator online and it'll tell you actually, it'll tell you if you are, if, if, you know, if it's determined to be central obesity or not. Um, these are one of the things that we don't do in in my office. And honestly, I don't really remember what the ratio is. I think it's two to three um, for ways to, to hit, but I can't be, I can't be sure right now. I could look
0: it up and I'll say it in the intro. So that, that yeah. way, I'm pretty sure that for criteria, I'm not a hundred percent sure because I always forget numbers but I'm pretty sure that it's 35 inches for women and over 40 for men is where you're starting to define like increased waist circumference and then um I think you're right on the waist to hip ratio but I'll look it up and I'll say it in the intro. So
1: yeah, it's the waist to hip because um for example uh genetically in terms and in terms of body habitus like the Latin communities um They have wider hip ratios, wider hip to, you know, like they have high, bigger hips. So, um, it has to be the, the waist to hip ratio because somebody who is, you know, so somebody who has, is, has bigger bones, um, then, but they have big hips, then that's not considered central obesity necessarily. So I think it's, it's definitely a ratio. Well, thank you for pointing that
0: out because this is actually one of those areas of understanding body size and body shape that I am super passionate about. In fact, they do have when it comes to body mass index, which some argue for against that measurement, they actually have different criteria for Asian population, but then everybody else is just lumped into one group. But You're telling me, and I think there's a lot of people that can look around and say, obviously, that there are some ethnic groups that have different body types. And so we need to kind of look at them within that. Um, But also, whenever you were talking about earlier that right now we don't really have good formal criteria, but then I see the statistics and I see how many Latin Americans are suffering from this disease, not knowing that they have it. They get diagnosed by the time they get diagnosed, they may be eligible for a liver transplant. to me that's that's a big gap there. And so we're you know it's almost like we were talking about these things that we're starting to discover that we have these biases in medicine that we're not addressing these huge disparities uh, so that we can actually help people stay healthy. I think that this is definitely an area that I would advocate that we, we need to improve how we're approaching this disorder for sure. Can you talk to me Absolutely. a little bit more about reversal? So whenever somebody comes in, you said stage two, stage three, and you're like, okay, I have an opportunity now to help this patient, potentially reverse it, maybe at least arrest it. What are you telling patients? What are you telling them to do?
1: So that's a great question. So by guidelines, we recommend at least a 10% um, weight loss. Um, but we've seen that even five percent and and seven percent can actually reverse, so what we do is that we do that baseline assessment with fiber scan um and then we get a score so when you um when you're doing a fiber scan, you're getting not only a um you know how elastic your liver is, that means it has little elasticity, that means you've already progressed into different stages of fibrosis, but also the fat content of your liver. So you get two different numbers when you do a fiber scan or liver elastography. Um, and those are really important. So we want to track them through time. So um, ideally, you know, if I get somebody with advanced, uh, like F2 or f F three is advanced, but if I get somebody who's F three, then I want to put them on lifestyle, you know, changes, a regimen right away, and then I'm gonna measure it in six months. With stage one fibrosis, stage one and two, or just fatty liver, then I, you know, we can repeat it in in a year, um, that fibro scan to to make sure that you know it's it hasn't progressed and it's actually either stayed the same, arrested, right, or um, gotten better. Um, so what do I tell them? I, you know, I give them my spiel about how everything you know, the most important thing is that what we actually put inside our bodies. So that comes in, in the things that we drink and the foods that we eat. So I tell them in order of, you know, worst to uh, least bad, you're going to take out of your diet right away as much processed foods as possible. So I want you doing, if you can, doing more meal prepping, more cooking at home. If you have a sweet tooth, I can give you some recipes so that you can do, um, you can make foods at home once or twice a week that you can have as snacks and, and, you know, satisfy that sweet tooth. But processed foods, sodas, um, store-bought cookies, and um, and that just has to go because that's pure sugar. There's no nutritional content in those and it's definitely contributing to your fatty liver. So that for me is the one that has to go right away. And then, you know, I have to reteach them. And it's, it's kind of like you were saying, that cultural, uh, that cultural wisdom that gets passed down, I have to like, take them back to their childhoods and how they ate when they were young, and emphasize the role of whole foods of actual foods, foods that you can recognize, you know, that that grew in the ground, right? Um, or somebody picked it from a tree. So going back to that, when I when I explain that to them, to them, especially our Latino communities, they get it hundred percent right away. It makes sense to them. And then I go on to explain that a lot of the foods that we recognize as foods in this country are actually not treated the same way that they were in their native countries, right? Whether that's dairy. Um, we don't, you know, the the fat content and, and the way that dairy is processed is just not something that we personally know because it's all, you know, behind closed doors. There's a lot of processing that takes place there. The The animals are not treated the same way. They're not allowed to run free. So it's just the fat content, the hormonal content, whether antibiotics is getting put in their feet or not. It's just completely different, a different, a complete disconnect from how food was um, processed in their native countries so they get it and then I tell them, look, some healthier alternatives that you know we're fortunate enough to have here are you know if you want to switch over to a plant-based milk, you can. so versus processed foods I take that out hundred percent. then for me, I focus on the things that tend to be higher in cholesterol and that is you know uh, red and processed meats, eggs and dairy. So that's my next in line. And I and then that follows that spiel about, you know, these animals are not are not processed the same way as we recognize from our native countries. And uh, I teach them that, you know, saturated fat is mostly found, saturated fat and cholesterol is mostly found in animal products. So when you consume these, these translate into your liver, uh, storing this fat. In excess because we're you were just consuming too much saturated fat we are not active enough to need to burn all that fat um so so they understand that and then you know they'll ask me about um chicken poultry um and then fish so I tell them look it not everybody can go 100% plant based. Um, the closer you get, obviously, um, to whole food plant based, the less fat and saturated fat you're going to be intaking into your body. So you are going to see um, more drastic results in your health, in your weight, and in your liver parameters if you do go all the way. But having said that, you know, if you choose to have uh, chicken, um, you know, a couple times per week, um, just make sure it's not fried, you know, try to get chicken breast and really fish is one of these foods that in terms of fatty liver, we haven't seen poor outcomes with. So fish is a healthier alternative to things like red or processed meats. Um, so they can have, you know, if they choose to, they can have fish, um, a couple times per week. I tell them, try not to, for not to be shellfish. I always educate them, you know, uh, the bigger the fish, the more, um storing of these heavy metals they're going to have in their body so tuna eat sparingly but smaller fish tend to be healthier so i give them that gradient and at least they have a clear cut plan about what foods they really should avoid so you know definitely avoid as much as possible right because we're all human and we process foods it's just about uh doing it in in a in a mindful way um and um and then the red processed meats um, and uh and eggs and and dairy that we know have higher cholesterol content so really um once you do that they they understand um the progression the natural progression and i tell them look you don't have to do it 100 percent all the way like from the beginning do it as you're comfortable with but now they are empowered with that information that they actually didn't have before you know Things are marketed as healthy or gluten-free and they have, they're just so confused. They have no idea that these things are not, are not healthy at all.
0: Wow. That's awesome. I love your protocol and this like stepwise fashion that you take your patients through, but can we go back and I want you to explain something that I think can be really confusing. I love how you started with the processed foods and processed products, but I also want to probably emphasize for our listeners, because I feel like sometimes this gets left out that you also mentioned beverages. So our sweetened beverages, sodas, pop, things like that. You know, we're talking about fatty liver. So you automatically think fat. But what I'm hearing you say is that having this excess refined sugar can also be harming the liver. So can you explain a little bit more about how that works? Because I think it's, it's not intuitive that this processed sugar and these sweetened beverages can also be harming.
1: Absolutely. So um, and, you know, people are so confused by the different uh, diet styles, low fat, low, low carb and all these things. So I definitely uh, agree that that needs to be uh, clarified. So when, you know, originally we, when we discussed that fatty liver, we cannot divorce that from things like diabetes and central obesity. Um we can't so we know that fatty liver is very much connected to insulin resistance so that's where the tie with you know type 2 diabetes and central obesity and and just cholesterol um all all comes in they so you know they don't actually researchers don't actually have it mapped out the pathophysiology of this and why it happens and if it's that way in everybody. So we know that there's actually skinny people with fatty liver. So one of the things that we didn't talk about in terms of cultural differences is that there's a lot of, uh, I don't know the exact number, I think it's like 10 to 15% of the Asian population has fatty liver, but they are phenotypically outwardly thin. So um, that's a different variant of this fatty liver that we're dealing with. The one that we're focusing on now is that, you know, insulin resistance mediated um, fatty liver and and metabolic syndrome as a whole. So when we consume, you know, processed sugars devoid of that fiber, our body just naturally um, absorbs it right away and it goes into our bloodstream. And then um, the liver is intimately, um, you know... Uh, it's an organ that deals not only with fat, but also with uh, gluconeogenesis. So different, you know, glucose production or glucose management in the body. So when it comes to what different foods increase your risk of fatty liver, one of the ones that the studies have shown is processed foods um, in in a very high way. So not it's not just animal products and uh, products in high saturated fat but it's also actually more processed foods than anything else. So that's why we remove these completely from the beginning, just because our body stores them as fat. I mean, it's so
0: interesting. I mean, what an awesome and just fascinating organ that it does all of these things. Now a word on alcohol. So for your patients that have been diagnosed with fatty liver do you tell them to completely avoid or is there a certain amount because fatty liver can also be caused by excess alcohol consumption. So what what is usually your advice for these patients?
1: Yeah, so absolutely. And, and so can different medications, you know. So after talking about food in, in a lengthy way, we discuss all the other things that they are consuming or doing. So we go through their medication list. We just we make sure that you know their thyroid, for example, is at the level that it should be. So when I'm working them up with labs, I make sure that one of the things that they're not suffering from is hypothyroidism, which can also precipitate fatty liver. Um, but also medications: are they on steroids for whatever reason? Are they on hormone replacement therapy? If they are, I you know I talk to their uh, whichever provider originally uh, ordered those medications to see if this is a medication that need to be on long-term. So we know that steroids long-term are one of the most damaging medications, but there's a subset of patients that need to be on it. So we just make sure that that medication list, that supplement list is optimized. Um, it's really, you know, we want to get rid of all the things that are not needed. Um, and then we talk about all the other lifestyle measures. We know that um, our health, 80%, you know, at least the diseases that I deal with, 80% of the health of my patient's health has to, it comes from the nutrition, the food that they're intaking, but where does the other 20% of their health come from? And it comes from these other lifestyle factors, whether it's, you know, sedentarism, you know, sitting is the new smoking, right? So right now we're sitting here for a full hour and um, that's just not contributing to our health. And, um, And there are other lifestyle habits such as, you know, are they drinking? So we know that for women, alcohol affects women in a disproportionate way when it compares to men. So for women, alcohol is one of these things that if you're drinking two drinks a day and you're like, oh, it's just two little drinks a day, you know, uh, a glass of wine with a, with a refill um, that you're not going to pay attention to it. But I've seen women who have progressed to cirrhosis from two drinks a day, every day for years, for a couple of years, not even 10 years. Um, so it does affect us, um, you know, our body, our body mass and and body composition is very different from men we do have less muscle mass at baseline um so i you know i think it has to do with that that just our liver processes processes the the alcohol very differently but also it could be genetically predisposed it, there's many components to it um, but especially for women, I really counsel them that you know, um having one to two drinks per week would be max um, and and then for men, I tell them, look, you have this condition. I cannot divorce you having fatty liver from it being due to alcohol, so I need you to really cut back and and they do. so then we work to cut it, we work to cut it in half, and then the next time we cut it in half again, and then um you know, a lot of these people have. They've quit smoking, so they think, you know, drinking a glass of wine a day is healthier. Um, So it's just about working with each patient individually because we can't just have a blanket formula for everybody.
0: Thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate that so much because I feel like sometimes we see these headlines in the media. We say, like, everybody needs to be drinking red wine and everybody should just be, you know, taking gobs of olive oil or whatever. And then, you know, we kind of want to do that because it sounds like way more fun, but I think every patient needs to speak with their healthcare provider, understand their individual susceptibilities, their individual risks, because for you, if you have fatty liver, that glass of wine, the Mediterranean lifestyle may not really be helping you more than it's harming you. So I think it's important to understand and not just take these media things that likes to be, you know, shouted all over the media that everybody needs to be doing certain things. It should be individualized. So thank you so much for pointing that out. What's the Mm -hmm. most amazing transformation that you've witnessed, whether it's fatty liver or something else in your, in your career, what kind of stands out?
1: I mean, you know, as an inflammatory bowel disease specialist, I think that seeing my patients who had just rampant um you know inflammation all over their colon and couldn't tolerate even going near like legumes and and rice and beans uh just could had so many food intolerances because their colon was so inflamed or their bowel was so inflamed, and then you see them three six months later and and they first of all you you do the a colonoscopy on them and their colon is is it's as if you know those ulcers had never been there but also all of a sudden you know that they're enjoying all these incredibly nutritious foods high fiber foods that they weren't able to even go near before so i think that's the most amazing transformations and it's it's just um it's just the opposite of what we, you know, as gastroenterologists and, and doctors, we were trained to see um or trained to do, you know. So I just I, I can't I'm always completely surprised by it because it's like I wasn't taught that and my patients are teaching me that and we're going through this journey together. And it's just the most incredible journey that we can really transform something as an incurable uh, autoimmune disorder or inflammatory disorder and and transform it in, in as little as three months. Wow, that's
0: just beautiful and so amazing. And you're right. I think that in medical school and training, we're taught that a lot of these conditions are progressive, right? They're just gonna get worse. You're gonna have to, and we counsel patients that way. We're probably gonna have to change medications eventually. We have to use stronger medications over time. So to see something like ha- something like that happen where you're doing the colonoscopy and it's like it was never there, almost like witnessing a miracle, right? But even better than a miracle because you know that the patient is empowered. And also now they can have more well-being because they can enjoy these foods and go out into society and and do the things that they like to do. So that's amazing.
1: What do you wish more people knew? Um, I think people, I think I, I would want people to just go back to the basics, right? Just go back to the basics. What were the basics? When we were children, our parents told them, told us to eat fruits and veggies and to, you know, um, and then they let us go outside and play. Like that was basics. Like that was a good childhood. And I think that is not only childhood, that should be how adulthood is right. You take care of your body, you nourish your body inside and out. And, um, and, and things you know thing you're gonna be able to prevent disease, and then you're gonna be able to help yourself uh, if you do have um standing diseases so I think just going back to the basics, um I think you know my um take home points are are focus on nutrition, focus on whole foods, um you know try to eat real foods um uh, as a gastroenterologist, and you know my colleagues love to say that we emphasize diversity of plants so that comes from eating real foods. If you're eating real foods, um, most of them are going to come from the earth in the form of plants and and the many diff- different varieties you should be enjoying, you know, year round. I think that movement is incredibly important, not only for our physical health but for our mental health. And um, you know, um, along with that goes being outside in nature. So studies have shown that just two hours in nature every week. Um, is associated with improved mental and physical health. So I always emphasize that. And um, and social con- connectivity. you know we're living in a very unprecedented time and uh, it's important now more than ever to um, to remain socially connected, whether it's through, you know, um, through a platform like this one or through seeing our loved ones at a distance. However it needs to be, it's completely different for everybody, but we need to stay socially connected. And lastly is how you manage your stress. So um, I emphasize all my patients should be taking some time, whether it's a nature walk where you're contemplating and you're in a contemplative state or you're meditating at home, whatever it is, you need to check in with yourself, allow yourself to be gentle on yourself and allow yourself to, to process your thoughts and your emotions in a healthy way. So those are, you know, my usual take home points when it comes to to health.
0: You know, right now I think we're realizing more than ever how important it is to connect. And I think after the world opens up again, we're all going to be running back to each other and having all kinds of get-togethers and celebrations, and also not taking it for granted as much as we did maybe in the past, but incorporating those whole foods, getting out in nature, and you know getting that microbiome nice and robust and healthy through all of the whole foods but also being out in the in nature and being out in the world is so important. Well I'd love to know what personal habit you are most proud of how you developed it and how you maintain it.
1: Um that's a difficult one. I think um I think for me there's not one um you know one that I can say that I point to. I think that we what we strive to do every week is really, um, as a family, go out into nature and connect. Um, I think uh, that, you know, it's it's difficult because not everybody has access to that. But I think um, a way that people can do it, you know, whether you're in New York City living in a small apartment or you're out in the countryside, there's always ways to do it. So um, I I, you know, I have a garden, so we like to work in our garden and and have the little one work in the garden and just uh, feel the soil under him and then um, it's just incredible to see what we can grow in our garden so um, I think you know everybody can have a little you know whether it's growing an herb on your windowsill um, whether it's you know actually having a garden or you know just enjoying somebody else's garden I think uh, that connection back to. To nature, it it roots us, it grounds us, and um, and I think that appreciation for for our planet and and Earth and and where our food comes from is it's something that's incredibly important to foster in our in our future generations. So I think that would be it um, if I had to pick one. I love that, and I love how you include
0: your whole family in that activity. How wonderful it is for them to grow up. Knowing some of these skills, I did not grow up gardening. I've done it once, and we're going to attempt it again. so this this year, my husband's getting all the planter boxes and everything ready. He may be the head gardener, which I'm fine with, but I think it's time for us to try it again and make time for it, deliberately make time and space in our lives to grow that garden because it's not just like a literal thing but a figurative thing. you know it's an area of personal growth as well. Well, this has been such a fabulous conversation and you have provided us with so much information, so much value. And I know that my listeners are really wanting to connect with you. So please tell us how we can connect with you.
1: Absolutely. So I am definitely very active on social media, especially Instagram, but also on Facebook. Um, you know, my uh, Instagram handle is plant based gut talk, And on Facebook, I'm as Dr. Vanessa Mendes or Vanessa Mendes. And then, you know, I have a baby website that <laughs> is launching uh, little by little. I mean, it, it is launched. It just, um, and it has useful content. So I recommend that, you know, People go there, subscribe, because I do have uh, interesting posts on the gut microbiome on, you know, transitioning to plant based diet. We have some recipes there. Um, and the website is uh, doctor as in drvanessamendis.com, Um, And yeah, they can connect uh, with me through there as well. I
0: think your website is beautiful. It's got <laughs> lots of good things on there. So <laughs> be proud and definitely go visit her and like I said on Instagram, she has really great posts that are informational and bilingual in English and in Spanish. Well, if you can leave us today with one call to action, what is one thing that we can do to improve our health starting today?
1: I think um given everything that we discussed and all the tips on, you know, just being healthier, I think the most important thing is to be to go easy on ourselves. So um, I think mental health is the most important aspect of everything. If our minds are not, you know, going the right way, then nothing else um, can go the right way in our body. So, um, so I think going easy, being patient with ourselves, we're all going through different transitions um, in, in at each moment of our lives. So I think just being kind and loving to yourselves and just focus on the good things that you did today not the things that you didn't do and didn't get to um and just you know know that tomorrow you're going to try just as hard as you did today or even harder and um it's not about it's not about losing that weight or you know um having these these clear cut goals that we that society teaches us to have It's about uh, progress and and not perfection so just be gentle on yourself, be patient with yourself, you're going to be if you did things today that you hadn't done yesterday, that were good for you, you're already winning. That's such a beautiful message. And that's how life
0: is, right? It's I think perfectionism actually gets in our way. Perfect is the enemy of good. So just like Dr. Mendez was saying, focus on the things you've been doing, right? How can you make that grow? Instead of you know, being down on yourself or punishing yourself for those little stumbles that you've had along the way that we all do because we're all human. Well, Dr. Vanessa Mendez, this has been such a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing, not just on social media, but with your patients, you are doing fabulous work. And I'm very grateful for you.
1: Thank you so much, Yami. It's been a pleasure. Honestly, I think this is the uh, beginning of many, you know, future collaborations. I'm incredibly proud to know you and call you my colleague. And uh, thank you all for listening to us today. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on, on the social media realms. Absolutely. I will be
0: there. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. You as well.